the word of our God. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. Then he said, you know that all the kingdom was mine and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. Now I ask one petition of you. Do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. Then he said, please speak to King Solomon for he will not refuse you that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak to the king uh, for you to the king. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother So she sat at his right hand. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, for him and for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, And who has established a house for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and struck him down, and he died. And then dropping down to verse 36. Then the king sent and called Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem. And dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day that you go out and cross the brook Kidron. Know for certain, you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, "The, The saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened at the end of three years that two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Maacah, the king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei arose, saddled his donkey, and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, 
Know for certain that on the day that you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die. And you said to me, the word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said, moreover, to Shimei, You know, as your heart acknowledges, all the wickedness that you did to my father David. Therefore, the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we we ask that you would uh, bless this reading of your word and bless us with understanding of what you would have us to know and understand and apply from it. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began looking at this, uh, this difficult chapter. We have uh, David uh, commanding Solomon to start his reign by putting a bunch of people to death. We have now, as we continue, Solomon putting two of these men to death, and we'll pick up with uh, two other characters next week, uh, Lord willing. Um, but as we look at this, uh, realize that a lot of commentators think that this shows a, uh, a bad, vicious streak in David, and Solomon as little better. And uh, I think that's a, a great mistake when we look at this portion of the chapter, uh, because verses 12 and verse 46, hedging all of these actions Solomon takes, uses language that very, very directly ties into first, uh, Second Samuel chapter 7, where God declares how David's sons will be established on a throne, and that is through righteousness. And God makes very clear there that if there's not righteousness, they won't be established. And so to use this same language and hedge the whole account, verses 12 and 46, with this thought, I think we need to to not just jump to bloodthirsty Solomon. I think there's another problem with thinking of this as Solomon just being bloodthirsty as well. And that is 1 Chronicles 22, 7 through 9. In that place, David is talking to Solomon right before he dies. And he says to Solomon, in essence, I wanted to build the temple. God wouldn't let me because I'm a man of war and a man of bloodshed. And I have blood on my hands. But God has promised me a son who will be a man of peace, who will build the temple. I think for us to not take that text into our consideration when we interpret this chapter is a a vast mistake. God says that Solomon is a man of peace on whose hands there is not blood. And so whatever we do with this chapter we need to realize that God views Solomon as acting righteously. And I suggested last week one of the things God is doing here in putting David's last moments and Solomon side by side is showing us uh, what neither man is able to show us, the fullness of Christ as the judge. Uh, David is the man of sorrows. 
He, he is acquainted with grief. He represents Christ's humiliation. And there's unfinished business when David dies. He's not able to do it all. Solomon, with all his sins that we'll see, is described in scripture as a king who reigns in exaltation and, uh, and, and, and glory. Even though he sins, that, that's still the flavor of his life. He points us to the exaltation of Christ and therefore to his final judgment where he will complete all the work as king and as judge, which he has. And I think that's what we're seeing here. The unfinished business is not left unfinished. Solomon is acting as a righteous judge and king. And I think there are then three, uh, three lessons that will uh, draw us from Solomon acting as a righteous judge uh, to him pointing us ahead to the final judgment in this chapter. And we're only going to look at one of them tonight. We'll save the other two for next week. But this is the, the major one. It's a very important one. Uh, we see in this chapter Solomon's consistent judgment. Solomon's consistent judgment. Because what is the thing that both of the passages, both of the stories we just read, have in common? They both have in common Solomon telling someone, do this, you live. Do this, you die. Time passes. Both men cast aside Solomon's uh, command. And therefore, Solomon keeps his his judgment, his command, that he would put them to death. So this is an instance of a consistent judge. And, and a consistent judge is what we all want, whether we think about it or not. We want a consistent judge. Solomon is consistent. So let's look first at Adonijah and how Solomon is a consistent judge here. Uh, verses 13 through 18 show us Adonijah's um, subtle... Or, or maybe not so subtle uh, attempt at getting a wife. Um, we, we often read with modern eyes, and so we may be tempted to think, what's the big deal? Isn't Solomon overreacting? This is a, a young woman whom David never slept with. The text is very clear about that. Go back and look at chapter 1. David never slept with her, and she's not his wife. And so what's the big deal? Adonijah's staying at home. He's doing what he's supposed to do. But he just wants a wife at home. So why would Solomon blow up like this? That might be how we're tempted to think. And yet I think there, there's plenty that would tell us that Adonijah is not being as innocent as he's trying to put on here. And that Solomon is not being as irrational as our modern minds might want to think. Uh, in terms of his innocence, you know, he stays home, then he comes to Bathsheba to talk to her, to get her to do him a favor. He wants this young woman who's the newest edition, the last edition to David's harem. And um, he, he asks it framed like this. You know that all the kingdom was mine, and all Israel had its expectations on me that I should reign. Uh, but, oh yeah, God 
said that Solomon would reign. Now, at first glance, we might think this is someone who's acknowledged the Lord had a plan and the Lord's choice is the final choice. But when you reflect, the rest of what he says is irrelevant if he has really submitted himself to God's providence and will. Why would it matter to frame it like that? You know that all the kingdom was mine and everyone wanted me as their king. For one thing, we don't actually know that's true. Chapter 1, 50% of the major people in the realm didn't want him as king. So we can speculate that maybe 50% of the realm wouldn't have wanted him either. Uh, but, but more importantly, the realm isn't what matters. And if, if you say only God's opinion matters, you go back and you read Deuteronomy and he talks about kingship and that the Lord will choose who is king. And if you're really submitting to that, you don't hang on to the, it was mine. I, I would encourage you to think about that when you reflect on events in your own life. Don't we sometimes act like this? Uh, God in his providence has caught us up short on something we wanted. And maybe there was some level of, uh, uh, whether or not we acknowledge it, some level of sin in what we wanted out of life. And God has given us something else. Are we really submitting to God's providence if we go in with all of our reasons why what we wanted originally was the better idea. I, I think perhaps that might reveal something about our pride, our desire to reign on our own uh, thrones over our own hearts. Here is a man who has not really submitted to God's choice. Uh, more importantly, when thinking about Solomon's reaction, I think two things are important to note. Um, one, we think concubine isn't the same as wife, and, and that's true, um, but we can go too far in that and think that there weren't things that were morally tied between the two thoughts. And so even though David never slept with her, and he had this concubine, and that was all sin to begin with, because David should have been happy with his first wife, uh, but... Um, nonetheless, in the ancient Near East, your whole harem, even of concubines, uh, even if they weren't fully wives, and it was irrelevant if you slept with them, uh, they were all part of a power structure. And so for this man to come in and want part of that harem, the, the most recent addition, is, a, is seen by anyone in the ancient Near East would have been seen as a power move. Whether it was or not, that's how it would have been seen. To ask Bathsheba, perhaps the head of the harem, uh, I'm putting it crassly, but that, you know, D David had a harem. We, we just need to acknowledge the sinful thing that was going on in Israel. And, uh, and Bathsheba would have been the top of that at this point. And for him to seek the top of that to give the, the newest addition to him is a clear power move. And that's why Solomon says, why don't you just ask for the kingdom? He's the older brother. If he has the newest addition to the harem, I might as well just give up my throne right now. And I think scripture is indicating to us that Solomon's not wrong 
Solomon doesn't have to ask God for wisdom before he starts displaying wisdom in his youth. Um, But there's a third thing as well, I think, here. And that is uh, that, uh, again, to our mindset that there's this vast difference between a concubine and a wife. Remember what happens to Reuben when he sleeps with his father's concubine. She isn't a wife. She's a concubine. And Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, loses his firstborn right. Because that was understood to be equivalent to sleeping with your father's wife. So Jacob, at least, views it as no different. And I I think God's law, therefore, would look at it as no different as well. And so for Solomon, there's, there's a responsibility to uphold God's moral law where this is concerned. So there are a lot of things in favor of Solomon's action here and, um, and a lot of things against Adonijah's thought. But here's the main one. He had declared, Solomon had declared in chapter 1, verse 52, that if Adonijah proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. And then he told Adonijah, go home. Don't cause trouble. Don't stir things up. And here, this man is making a power play. And so when Solomon has him put to death, it's a, there's a big difference between looking for the opportunity to kill your brother because you hold a vendetta against him. And upholding the law that has been laid forward and placed before the person when they have broken it. And as judge, Solomon is doing this very thing. Similarly with Shimei. Shimei, I don't think, has uh, outward wickedness tied to his action here. Uh, I, I suspect he probably innocently enough went about his action. He's not trying to to uh, take over the throne like Adonijah was. But with Shimei also we have one who was given an offer of life and who breaks what the offer required. And Solomon comes in and brings justice then. And it is justice. Whether we think a law is a good law or not, if it is a law that is appointed by the authority God has put in place, then it is right for that to be punished, even if we don't like the law. And that's what Solomon is doing here. He's being a consistent judge. So you have uh, Shimei, remember, is the man that when David was going out, and as David was crossing the brook Kidron, which I think is significant here, This man spat at David and cursed him. And he cursed him using Yahweh. Uh, Using God's name, he cursed him in the name of God. When David came back on the day he was celebrating and coming back with his people, his return from exile, he was giving pardons to everyone right and left. And so David said, I will not put you to death. David 
I think, uh, did the right thing there because David is the one offended. And it, it is right and proper. Um, I can't remember if we have this in our elder handbook at this church or not, but uh, I know that it's just kind of unspoken. That if, uh, if something with a family member of one of the elders is, is up for church discipline, that person sits out of any disciplinary cases. Because how can you be expected to be unbiased? Uh, and I think a lot of churches have that kind of setup, right? If if um, if someone's brother is being brought forward on church discipline charges, uh, then you sit out and you let the other elders deal with it. I think that's just plain wisdom. I think David's doing that. This man cursed me. I'm not going to put him to death. I can't make this judgment in that way. But when he calls on Solomon as king to bring justice to Shimei, I think he's reflecting back on Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, where God compares cursing the anointed of the Lord with cursing the Lord himself. Go and look at the verse. The two things are side by side, that one is not to curse the Lord and one is not to curse the Lord's anointed. And so David saw that as his responsibility to uphold. When Saul was coming after him, he would not curse Saul. He would not touch Saul. He would not permit anyone else to touch Saul. And when a man came boasting that he had killed Saul, the guy was lying. But David upheld God's law and put the man who claimed to kill Saul to death. Why? Because Saul was a great man of faith. No! Openly and publicly, God had denounced Saul well before that point. And yet David saw that he was still the Lord's anointed. He still had received that calling, and David would not touch him. So I think with Shimei, we should understand David telling Solomon to do something. Is David saying, I'm too close to it, but you still have a law, a, a, a law to uphold. To uphold God's law from Exodus twenty two twenty eight. In this instance, Solomon chooses to bring a a merciful style punishment. Instead of outright death, he says, "You can have life imprisonment instead of death." And it's actually not a bad deal. It's not like he's putting him in a ten by ten foot room with bars. He's not even having him under house arrest. He says to him, build yourself a house in the most important city in the realm. The city that has plenty of merchants, probably had some good entertainment, is right there next to the temple. Uh, You know, everything you could want is in this city. Just don't leave the city. That's not a bad situation if the alternative is death. Not only that, but I think we see kind of Solomon's way that his brain works with wisdom here. This man cursed David as he crossed the brook Kidron, mocking his exile. And so Solomon says, if you cross that brook, the very place where you committed your sin, that will be your death sentence. I don't think it's... I don't think it's... uh, insignificant 
that the location is mentioned, and it's the same location as the crime. Well, apparently this man Shimei, though, after three years, you know how things fade. Uh, you, you get scared that you're going to get caught having broken a law, and then with time you realize, ah, I got away with it. And, and sometimes we think, oh, they're not going to remember these things. And so with time, this fear of Solomon fades. And not only that, he probably thought, well, what Solomon really meant is don't run away. I'm not running away. I'm going to come right back. So what's the big deal? The irony is he's going after men who had run away, but he's running away from where he was told to be to to bring them back. But the important thing is, unlike Shimei, Solomon took the words of the law that he had laid down seriously. And so this man, too, is put to death. Solomon's consistent. He declared the law. He made a promise of judgment if the law was broken. It had a clear penalty, and that penalty was death. Instead of looking at the other two stories, I want to stop on this point, though, tonight. Because I think this is a very important point. In these two accounts, and in Solomon's consistency, we're pointed ahead to the Day of Judgment. And there are a number of things we can reflect on from it. One is we can reflect on how much like Shimei we maybe really deep down are. We often look at God's laws and we say, okay, God said that, but how important is it really? Well, God said, don't do this, but, but the intent behind it was something bigger than this. And so I'm... Um, I'm not keeping the words of the law, but I I got the basic gist of it, and he'll be satisfied with that. So many sins fall into those kind of categories. And like Shimei thinking, well, I'm not running away and moving to Egypt. I'm coming right back. I have the intent of the law, but the words of the law matter. And the judge is righteous and true and never goes back on his word. What he said is the law. And when Christ returns, every sin will be judged at its face value. Every law broken, without excuses. Christ is going to be faithful to judge consistently based on righteous law, which he has revealed. And he isn't going to make exceptions because of, well, your circumstances, your slaves ran away, or your intent, I'm going to be right back. But there, there's something wonderful about that as well. That's the, that's the challenge for us. Do we try to play games with God's law? The judge isn't going to accept that. But then there's the comfort of this passage for us. Because just as Solomon is consistent to fulfill every word that he had spoken to these men, so our king will consistently bring judgment. Now, if, if Christ on the last day had some stand before him who never repented of their sins, and he said, you know what? I said hell. 
But I'm going to let you three in anyway. I want you to reflect on how bad it would be to think of Christ being such a judge. Because if a judge can be so, well, show favoritism, nepotism, if a judge can be inconsistent and not keep his own laws, then surely Christ on the last day could also say to some, I know I said if you confess your sins, I'll be faithful and just, but I'm not going to forgive you after all. We don't want Christ to be inconsistent as judge. All our hopes, all our assurance is gone if Christ backs down on his own rule and his own law. And Solomon here paints us a beautiful picture of a gracious king. Both of these men had the option at a merciful life and not a bad life. They both had plenty they could do. And yet, and yet Solomon is faithful as a judge to bring justice. Our king also will fulfill perfect justice one day. So be encouraged by that and be challenged in how you view his law. Do you meditate upon God's law with David day and night? thinking through not how you can sidestep it or or as we so often do make it less than it is right that's christ's point in the sermon on the mount we make the law less than it is instead of seeing its depth in the heart know that he will judge the depth of the law and we need to examine our hearts accordingly well next week i want to look at the type of justice he brings and the type of mercy he offers. But for now, it's sufficient to stop with this, that King Jesus is infinitely more consistent than King Solomon ever was. And his righteous kingdom will be brought about fully in accordance with his word. Let's pray.